Chapter Twenty Three of The Valley of Silent Men. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Valley of Silent Men by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Twenty Three. An hour later, the fighting forces in his body dragged Kent back into existence. He opened his eyes. The shock of what had happened did not at once fall upon him. His first sensation was of awakening from a sleep that had been filled with pain and horror. Then he saw a black rock wall opposite him. He heard the sullen roar of the stream. His eyes fell upon a vivid patch of light reflected from the setting sun. He dragged himself up until he was on his knees, and all at once a thing that was like an iron hoop, choking his senses, seemed to break in his head, and he staggered to his feet, crying out Marette's name. Understanding inundated him with its horror, deadening his tongue after that first cry, filling his throat with a moaning, sobbing agony. Marette was gone. She was lost. She was dead. Swiftly, as reason came, his eyes took in his environment. For a quarter of a mile above him he could see the white spume between the chasm walls, darkening with the approach of night. He could hear more clearly the roar of the death floods. But close to him was smooth water, and he stood now on a shelving tongue of rock and shale upon which the current had flung him. In front of him was a rock wall. Behind him was another. There was no footing except where he stood and Marette was not with him. Only the truth could batter at his brain as he stood there. But his physical self refused to accept that truth. If he had lived, she must live. She was there, somewhere, along the shore, among the rocks. The moaning in his throat gave way to the voicing of her name. He shouted and listened. He swayed back along the tongue of rock to the boulder-strewn edge of the chasm wall. A hundred yards farther on was the opening of the chute. He came out of this, his clothes torn from him, his body bleeding, unrecognizable, half a madman, shouting her name more and more loudly. The glow of the setting sun struck him at last. He was out from between the chasm walls, and it lighted up the green world for him. Ahead of him the river widened and swept on in tranquil quiet. And now it was no longer fear that possessed him. It was the horrible, overwhelming certainty of the thing. The years fell from him, and he sobbed, sobbed like a boy stricken by some great childish grief as he searched along the edge of the shore. Over and over again he cried, and whispered Marette's name. But he did not shout it again, for he knew that she was dead. She was gone from him forever. Yet he did not cease to search. The last of the sun went out. Twilight came, and then darkness. Even in that darkness he continued to search for a mile below the chute, calling her name more loudly now, and listening always for the answer which he knew would never come. The moon came out after a time, 
and hour after hour he kept up his hopeless quest. He did not know how badly the rocks had battered and hurt him, and he scarcely knew when it was that exhaustion dropped him like a dead man in his tracks. When dawn came, it found him wandering away from the river, and toward noon of that day he was found by André Boileau, the old white-haired half-breed who trapped on Burntwood Creek. André was shocked at the sight of his wounds, and half-dragged and half-carried him to his shack, hidden away in the forest. For six days thereafter, Kent remained at old André's place, simply because he had neither the strength nor the reason to move. André wondered that there were no broken bones in him. But his head was terribly hurt, and it was that hurt that for three days and three nights made Kent hover with nerve-wracking indecision between life and death. The fourth day, reason came back to him, and Boileau fed him venison broth. The fifth day, he stood up. The sixth, he thanked André and said that he was ready to go. André outfitted him with old clothes, gave him a supply of food and God's blessing. And Kent returned to the chute, giving André to understand that his destination was Athabasca Landing. Kent knew that it was not wise for him to return to the river. He knew that it would have been better for him both in mind and body had he gone in the opposite direction. But he no longer had in him the desire to fight, even for himself. He followed the lines of least resistance, and these led him back to the scene of the tragedy. His grief, when he returned, was no longer the heartbreaking agony of that first night. It was a deep-seated, consuming fire that had already burned him out, heart and soul. Even caution was dead in him. He feared nothing, avoided nothing. Had the police boat been at the chute, he would have revealed himself without any thought of self-preservation. A ray of hope would have been precious medicine to him. But there was no hope. Marette was dead. Her tender body was destroyed, and he was alone, unfathomably and hopelessly alone. And now, after he had reached the river again, something held him there. From the head of the chute to a bend in the river two miles below, his feet wore a beaten trail. Three or four times a day he would make the trip, and along the path he set a few snares in which he caught rabbits for food. Each night he made his bed in a crevice among the rocks at the foot of the chute. At the end of a week, the old Jim Kent was dead. Even O'Connor would not have recognized him with his shaggy growth of beard, his hollow eyes, and the sunken cheeks which the beard failed to hide. And the fighting spirit in him also was dead. Once or twice there leaped up in him a sudden passion demanding vengeance upon the accursed law that was accountable for the death of Marette, but even this flame snuffed itself out quickly. And then, on the eighth day, he saw the edge of a thing that was almost hidden under an overhanging bank. He fished it out. It was Marette's little pack, and for many minutes before he opened it, 
Kent crushed the sodden treasure to his breast, staring with half-mad eyes down where he had found it, as if Marette must be there, too. Then he ran with it to an open space where the sun fell warmly on a great, flat rock that was level with the ground, and with sobbing breath he opened it. It was filled with the things she had picked up quickly in her room the night of their flight from Kedsty's bungalow, and as he drew them out one by one and placed them in the sun on the rock, a new and sudden rush of life swept through his veins, and he sprang to his feet and faced the river again as if at last a hope had come to him. Then he looked down again upon what she had treasured, and reaching out his arms to them he whispered, Marette, my little goddess. Even in his grief, the overwhelming mastery of his love for the one who was dead brought a smile to his haggard and bearded face. For Marette, in filling her little pack on that night of hurried flight, had chosen strange things. On the sunlit rock where he had placed them were a pair of the little pumps which he had fallen on his knees to worship in her room, and with these she had crowded into the pack one of the billowing, sweet-smelling dresses which had made his heart stand still for a moment when he first looked into their hiding-place. It was no longer soft and cobwebby as it had been then, like down fluttering against his cheeks, but sodden and discolored as it lay on the rock with little rivulets of water running from it. With the shoes and the dress were the intimate necessities which Marette had taken with her. But it was one of the pumps that Kent picked up and crushed close to his ragged breast, one of the two she had worn that first wonderful day she had come to see him at Cardigan's place. This hour was the beginning of another change in Kent. It seemed to him that a message had come to him from Marette herself that the spirit of her had returned to him and was with him now, stirring strange things in his soul and warming his blood with a new heat. She was gone forever, and yet she had come back to him, and the truth grew upon him that this spirit of her would never leave him again as long as he lived. He felt her nearness. Unconsciously he reached out his arms, and a strange happiness entered into him to battle with grief and loneliness. His eyes shone with a new glow as they looked at her little belongings on that sunlit rock. It was as if they were flesh and blood of her, a part of her heart and soul. They were the voice of her faith in him, her promise that she would be with him always. For the first time in many days, Kent felt a new force within him and he knew that she was not quite gone, that he had something of her left to fight for. That night he made his bed for a last time in the crevice between the rocks, and his treasure was gathered within the protecting circle of his arms as he slept. The next day he struck out north and east. On the fifth day after he left the country of André Boileau, he traded his watch to a half-breed for a cheap gun, ammunition, a blanket, flour, and a cooking outfit. After that he had no hesitation in burying himself still deeper into the forests. A month later no one would have recognized Kent as the one-time crack man of N Division. 
Bearded, ragged, long-haired, he wandered with no other purpose than to be alone and to get still farther away from the river. Occasionally he talked with an Indian or a half-breed. Each night, though the weather was very warm, he made himself a small campfire, for it was always in these hours, with the firelight about him, that he felt Marette was very near. It was then that he took out, one by one, the precious things that were in Marette's little pack. He worshipped these things. The dress and each of the little shoes he had wrapped in the velvety inner bark of the birch tree. He protected them from wet and storm. Had emergency called for it, he would have fought for them. They became, after a time, more precious than his own life, and in a vague sort of way, at first, he began to thank God that the river had not robbed him of everything. Kent's inclination was not to fight himself into forgetfulness. He wanted to remember every act, every word, every treasured caress that chained him for all time to the love he had lost. Marette became more a part of him every day. Dead in the flesh, she was always at his side, nestling close in the shelter of his arms at night, walking with her hand in his during the day. And in this belief his grief was softened by the sweet and merciful comfort of a possession of which neither man nor fate could rob him, a beloved presence always with him. It was this presence that rebuilt Kent. It urged him to throw up his head again, to square his shoulders, to look life once more straight in the face. It was both inspiration and courage to him, and grew nearer and dearer to him as time passed. Early autumn found him in the Fond du Lac country, two hundred miles east of Fort Chippewyan. That winter he joined a Frenchman, and until February they trapped along the edges of the lower fingers of the barrens. He came to think a great deal of Picard, his comrade, but he revealed nothing of his secret to him, or of the new desire that was growing in him. And as the winter lengthened, this desire became a deep and abiding yearning. It was with him night and day. He dreamed of it when he slept, and it was never out of his thoughts when awake. He wanted to go home. And when he thought of home, it was not of the landing, and not of the country south. For him, home meant only one place in the world now, the place where Marette had lived. Somewhere, hidden in the mountains far north and west, was that mysterious valley of silent men where they had been going when her body died. And the spirit of her wanted him to go to it now. It was like a voice pleading with him, urging him to go, to live there always where she had lived. He began to plan, and in this planning he found new joy and new life. He would find her home, her people, the valley that was to have been their paradise. So, late in February, with his share of the winter catch in his pack, he said good-bye to Picard and faced the river again. End of chapter 23
Recording by Roger Moline.